So for the last couple months now, Brian has started a series looking at the book of Jeremiah. We've been considering the prophet together in some of his key messages. And over the last few weeks, Brian focused on one important element of Jeremiah's message, which is the theme of the king. In Jeremiah's day, the kingship was coming crashing down, and it seemed like God had fully cast off David's family. But the truth is, although Judah's kingship was ended, the promise to David's family remained. And so today, I'd like to take a slightly different angle on this theme and help us see how it was a central theme, not only in scripture, but especially in the life of Jesus. Instead of talking about the king today, I want to talk about the kingdom. So we're going to do three things today. First, we're going to see that the kingdom is a central theme in scripture. Then we're going to look at how Jesus takes and fulfills that theme in some maybe unexpected ways. And then finally, we'll consider what the kingdom means for us today. Now, before I dive into this, I just wanted to mention that a lot of the insights or things that I'm going to share with you today come from um, a little helpful book uh, called The Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross by Patrick Schreiner. Um, This is through Crossway's Short Studies in Biblical Theology. It's about 150 pages and really does a good job tracing the kingdom theme through all of the different parts of the Old Testament um, and New Testament and uh, is a really, really valuable resource. I have a digital copy, so if today you hear this and you say, wow, that's really interesting, um, come and find me, and and I'd be happy to, to borrow this out to you. Well, if I were to survey the room right now and ask you to define the kingdom of God, I would bet that we would probably get a variety of answers. Even among evangelical Christians, the idea of the kingdom of God is one that I would probably say, and I'm speaking for myself here, is underdeveloped. This is a core theme in scripture and especially in the life of Jesus. But the truth is, if we're honest, I don't think most of us know exactly what to do with it. Um, To some Christians, the kingdom of God primarily refers to heaven. It's a place you go where you die if you trust in Jesus. Others would say the kingdom is basically synonymous with the church. Or maybe some would say that the kingdom is more like a set of ethics that Jesus taught that are supposed to be followed through our Christian life. And to many, the kingdom is a metaphor for God's sovereignty and his power over everything. So which is it? And I would argue that all of these ideas share, have a share of truth to them, but they're actually all part of a much bigger and in some ways more basic story. So let me start here. What is a kingdom? Like at the most basic level, what do we mean when we talk about a kingdom? Are we talking about kings and castles, knights on horseback, damsels and dragons? Let me propose that a kingdom requires three basic things if you're going to call it a kingdom. You have to have a king to exercise rule. You have to have citizens to govern. And you have to have a land or a realm to oversee. Or if you like alliteration, a kingdom is a king's power over a king's people in a king's place. Take away any one of these and it ceases to be a kingdom. A king with people and a land, but no power to rule them is just a puppet. 
A king who rules his people but has no land is simply a nomad. And a king with a land but no people to govern is a king only to himself. A kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. And this is why I believe that we should read the very first words of the Bible as introducing us to God's kingdom as all of creation. I like this quote. I'll read it for you from a theologian, Eugene Merrill, who said this so well. He said, the kingdom story begins with the first sentence in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. By this simple but majestic affirmation, both king and realm are introduced. And in the six days that follow, the citizens of the kingdom, inanimate and animate, appear in their course until mankind, the crowning glory of the creator, takes center stage. The stage is set, the players are ready, and the drama may now begin. All of creation is a story of God's kingdom. By his power, he forms the earth and everything in it. Psalm 24 tells us that God is king of all creation, but he also, within creation, appoints a specific place called Eden as the center of his rule. He populates the earth with abundant creatures, but he chooses a people, Adam and Eve, as his image bearers. And these image bearers are given a unique commission. It's the first royal decree from God to his subjects. Maybe you're familiar with these words in Genesis 1.28. And God blessed them. And God said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And what is God doing in this passage? He's appointing Adam and Eve to a royal position, a royal calling to exercise a rule like God's. Think about the definition of kingdom as power, people, and place. Be fruitful and multiply. Expand God's people. Fill the earth. Expand God's place. And subdue it. Expand God's power or rule over creation. And so we do Adam and Eve a disservice when we kind of imagine them lounging around with their feet in the water all day. Yes, they were given an abundant garden for their enjoyment, but they had a job to do. The king had decreed that they were to expand Eden, to take the goodness of the garden and to multiply, fill, and subdue the world around them until all of the earth radiated with the garden beauty of Eden. But that's not how the story goes, is it? Instead, Adam and Eve eat from the one tree that God forbids them to eat, the tree of knowing good and evil. And don't miss this. In taking from the tree, Adam and Eve are saying, in effect, we don't trust you as king to define good and evil for us, so we're going to take that decision into our own hands. The citizens of the kingdom decide that they no longer want to live under the rule of the king. They want, in effect, to be a kingdom unto themselves. And God, in his justice, gives them what they want. Humanity breaks away from the kingdom of God to form their own kingdom, the kingdom of men. 
And for the rest of the biblical storyline until the last pages in Revelation, you have the tale of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men, or sometimes called the kingdom of this world. We've seen the beauty and order and abundance of God's kingdom. Now let's talk for a second about the kingdom of men. In the kingdom of men, power is used to subdue not just creation, but other people made in God's image and to make a name for yourself. In the kingdom of men, people come into the world only through the pain of childbirth. And in the kingdom of men, the very place, the land, is corrupted by thorns and thistles and the blood of the innocent. We want a kingdom on our own terms, and the result is death. So this raises the question, what's a king to do? Humanity has never actually left God's rule. He's still the king of the whole earth. But what is God going to do with humanity that constantly rejects him and destroys each other along the way? We've run amok of God's good world, and he's right to end us. And in the first 11 chapters of Genesis, we do see God's judgment highlighted many times over. But then Genesis 12 comes along, and it takes maybe an unexpected turn. God selects one man a pagan from the land of Babylon named Abram. And he makes a promise to him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed." Maybe you're familiar with that passage. But in other words, if I could phrase it another way, leave your place, leave your people, and leave the power that you would inherit in your father's house, leave all of that. Instead, go to the place that I will show you, and I will make you a great people, and you will have a great name or power so that you can be a blessing to all nations. What is God doing? He's making a promise to Abram that through him, he will fulfill his original kingdom mandate on the earth to have humanity rule alongside him over the earth. The true king calls, appoints, and promises that one day his kingdom will be restored on earth as it is in heaven. Are you tracking so far? All right, let's jump to the life of Jesus. I hope that you can begin to hear why people's ears would have tingled when they heard Jesus begin his ministry with these words, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. For all of the Old Testament, people wondered, when will God establish his rule on the earth again? When will Eden be restored? And after centuries of rebellion and waffling between God and the gods of the nations, Jesus declares that God's kingdom is finally arriving. So the question becomes, what does it look like when God's kingdom finally shows up? What I find interesting is that in the gospel accounts, Jesus often explains himself. He's asked to explain himself by the crowds or the leaders or the disciples. 
But I haven't found anywhere where people ask Jesus to define the kingdom of God. It's almost like these people already have a pretty good idea in their heads of what they think the kingdom of God should look like. Our New Testament reading from today was just one of many examples of Jesus talking about the kingdom. In fact, in Matthew, Jesus mentions the kingdom 50 times. This was not a minor idea in the life of Jesus. And these three parables that we heard, and there are even several more in Matthew 13, Jesus repeatedly says, the kingdom of heaven is like dot, dot, dot. And what you get is kind of an odd mixture of images. It's like wheat and weeds that grow up together. It's like a tiny mustard seed planted in the ground. It's like yeast that's worked into dough. What is Jesus doing? I don't think that Jesus is defining the kingdom as much as he was redefining it. Jesus knew his audience had long-standing ideas about how the kingdom of God was going to show up. And he worked slowly to plant ideas in their heads that would grow within them. As he says, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. The kingdom was at hand, but not in ways that people expected. What I want to do is I actually want to show you how Jesus took this idea of kingdom as power, people, and place, and he redefined each one of those through his earthly ministry. He fulfilled them in the sense of filling up to the full their true meaning. First, Jesus redefines power. Jesus exercises the king's power on the earth. He rightly claims at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Our Old Testament reading this morning from Daniel 7 is a magnificent portrait of that from a heavenly perspective. We read these words earlier. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So all power is given to the son of man. And the question is, what does it look like when the son of man uses that power? What Israel expected in Jesus' day was a king who would lead Israel to conquer the Romans and take back their land. People place power. But what we get instead is a man who goes around healing the sick, casting out demons, multiplying bread, calming storms, raising the dead. And that's puzzling because for all of human history, the kingdom of men has used power to control others, to seize authority for themselves. And you kind of get a sense, don't you, that during the whole course of Jesus' ministry, that the disciples were just waiting for Jesus to flip a switch. Like, meek and mild Jesus is great, but just say the word and we'll storm that praetorium and we'll take out the Romans with you. This is the mood when Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds line up to throw their cloaks on the road and say, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They saw an earthly kingdom that Jesus would erect and take out all of the foreign rulers. But there's a story that happens just before the triumphant entry in Mark. 
The disciples are once again arguing about who's going to have glory in Jesus' kingdom. Who gets to sit in positions of power? And, and please enter with me into the disciples' minds here. They're not thinking about what happens after they die. They're thinking about a present earthly kingdom that they're going to sit with Jesus over there in Jerusalem. And this is Jesus' response. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Recall Daniel 7 again. The Son of Man is given all dominion that all people should, what? Serve him. Do you know how Jesus ends those words to the disciples? He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Yes, all peoples, nations, languages will serve Jesus, but not before Jesus serves them with his very life. We should be shocked, we should be amazed. We should worship. Jesus redefines power in the kingdom. Jesus also redefines people in the kingdom. This one was simple, right? If you were an Israelite, then you were part of the kingdom. If you weren't an Israelite, then you weren't. And there were ways that non-Israelites could become Israelites, but that wasn't all that common. And so what happened in Jesus' day was that your bloodline had a direct effect on your kingdom standing. We see this clearly in the Jews' opinion of the Samaritans. Used to be full-blooded Jews, then they got intermixed with the nations, and then they were considered half, not fully Gentile, not fully Jew. John tells us in John 4, 9, in the story of the woman at the well, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so the question is, when the kingdom of God comes, who gets in? This is the issue that Jesus presses on Nicodemus in John 3, just before that story. Jesus answered Nicodemus and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, He cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, what it takes to enter the kingdom is more than ethnic identity. In fact, it's even more than believing the right things. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of the law. He had given his life to studying the Hebrew scriptures. And Jesus says that the only way that he can enter the kingdom is if he is born again. And this is the miracle of what Jesus was doing through his earthly ministry. He wasn't simply going around looking for the best and the brightest to recruit for his team. Instead, he selects an eclectic group of 12 with fishermen, a chronic doubter, a tax collector, a militant zealot, and more, and he makes them new people. No matter who you are today, not a single person in this room can say, I'm part of Jesus' kingdom because I choose to be. For those of us prone to pride in our identity, that should humble us. And for those of us who often feel cast out or forgotten by others, 
that should lift us up. The only way that you enter the kingdom is if and only if Jesus makes you a new person. This is not moral reform or behavior modification. This is not doing more good things than bad. This is being born from above, a heart-level transformation that is brought on by the Spirit of God, only possible because of Jesus. Jesus redefines people in the kingdom. And finally, Jesus redefines place in the kingdom. To the Jews, this was also a pretty easy one. The place of God's kingdom is the land of Israel that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And more specifically, at the center of God's presence was the temple in Jerusalem. We've been reading through Jeremiah, talking about it. And the argument in that day went something like this. We don't have to fear our enemies because the place where God lives is right here in our midst. Babylon was knocking on their door and the people should have turned and repented. But instead, we find an attitude that's indifferent at best. This is from Jeremiah 7, his sermon at the temple. He says, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Jeremiah goes on to say that Israel would break all of God's commandments and then stand in the temple and say, we're delivered. And God says, has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? That phrase, den of robbers, is the same phrase used by Jesus when he enters the temple and begins turning over tables. The religious leaders challenge Jesus and ask him to show them a sign to justify what he's done. And Jesus responds, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And John addresses the reader and says, He was speaking about the temple of his body. See, Israel had once again become too comfortable, assuming that they had God's favor because of the magnificent temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus upends their idea of God's place and redefines it. Where? In himself. Once the temple was the place where heaven and earth overlapped, the place where you would go to be made right with God. But now Jesus is the place where heaven and earth overlap, and he is the place that you go to be made right with God. Jesus redefines place in the kingdom. So we've seen that Jesus redefines power, people, and place in the kingdom, and I hope that what you've seen is that Jesus doesn't just redefine them or tweak their definition. He recenters each one of them on himself. He becomes the one who holds all power. He becomes the one who creates new people. He becomes the one where heaven and earth meet. Through his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus is showing us that he is the kingdom. He is the one who is like a mustard seed, just one life that dies that becomes a great tree for all the nations. He is like one, a little yeast that's worked into a loaf until it permeates the whole thing. Jesus is the kingdom, and that is good news. But I wonder, how should we respond? What difference should the kingdom of God make in Christ, the kingdom of God in Christ make in your life this week? And thankfully, we need not wonder about this. The first and most important response to the kingdom was already shared by Jesus when he began his ministry in the gospel accounts. 
what does he say? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The time is fulfilled. All of the promises of scripture that one day God would restore a heaven on earth kingdom are now coming true in Jesus. And what we should do in response is repent and believe. Why repent? Because you and I are native born from the kingdom of man. And just like Adam and Eve, each one of us is guilty of rejecting God's rules and choosing to define good and evil on our own terms. And the just and inevitable outcome of that is death. Please don't deceive yourself this morning. Reality is composed only of two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. There is no third kingdom. There is no neutral ground. As Colossians 1.14 says, you live in the domain of darkness or you have been transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. Which kingdom would you prefer to live in? kingdom where everyone gets to call their own shots feels great for a moment, but follow that through to its natural course and the end is chaos and destruction. We need a king that we can trust, one who has all power in heaven and on earth and yet lays it down in a life of sacrificial love. This is why we worship Jesus, not because we have to, but because we see in him, as the song says, a love so amazing, so divine, it demands my soul, my life, my all. God is appealing to you today. Come to Jesus, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and he will give you rest. Today, be reconciled to God. Repent and believe the good news. And for all of the longtime Christians in the room, let's remind ourselves that the, the command to repent applies to us too. The call to repent at the coming of God's kingdom in Christ is a call to repent of all the ways in which we've gotten a little bit too comfortable in the world. We want the kingdom of God, yes, but we'd also like to hold on maybe just a little bit to the kingdom of this world. Maybe just have a little bit of autonomy. Here's how that might manifest in your life this week. You know that you can trust God to meet all of your needs, but when the money doesn't come in, you thought it would, or unexpected bills pile up, you get anxious about being able to meet your needs. And to you, Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Maybe you've started to feel pretty good about yourself. You might not admit it, but there's a tendency to feel a subtle self-reliance. Things are going pretty well. It's a sort of slow-burning autonomy. And for you, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In just over a week, we're going to have elections. And I hope you take advantage of the incredible privilege of voting I hope you vote, and I also hope you realize that your vote does not change the one who's king over all creation. We should neither be too excited if our candidate wins nor too crestfallen if our candidate loses. As Jesus said twice to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. May we be reminded from the song that we sang this morning, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there's still one king reigning over all. 
In all of this, I take a certain measure of comfort knowing that Jesus had to work for years and years to get his followers to forsake certain stereotypes and misconceptions about the kingdom. If that was true of them, then it's probably best to assume that it's going to be true of me too. And so look to Jesus and let him redefine the kingdom for you. Let him teach you. Look at his life. We have more than just sermons. We have accounts of him eating with sinners, healing the sick, sharing food, washing feet. I think sometimes we have to be careful not to over-spiritualize the kingdom. Every week, we gather with citizens of the kingdom, and we are to relate to one another tangibly as citizens of the kingdom. Finally, for all of us who are in Christ, we've received a new creation mandate. Think about that first royal decree to Adam and Eve. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. Jesus brings the kingdom, conquers death, and resurrected in power. This is his first royal proclamation from the dead to his followers in Matthew. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Or maybe you could say it like this. Because all power has been given to Jesus... Therefore, go and make new people of all places. This is the mandate you and I are to carry out until the day when Jesus comes back, bringing the kingdom in full to earth as it is in heaven. In the Revelation, John sees the seventh trumpet blown and he hears a loud voice declaring, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever." And ever. I hope today you've seen with fresh eyes how the kingdom concerns God's power over God's people in God's place, how all of these come together in the person of Jesus, and how Jesus continues to challenge and change us today as citizens of his kingdom. Let me close with these words from Revelation. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever.